appealing a lawsuit to the U.S. Supreme Court seems to be very fashionable in certain circles. And I get it, because no one likes to lose. Absolutely no one. And that makes taking the case to the highest court in the land for one more bite at the apple sound very appealing. No pun intended. But seriously, what factors should a business consider before taking the plunge? My next guest has some answers. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, the weekly podcast for smart executives, managers, and entrepreneurs looking to improve business performance and their bottom line. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelschner, and today I want to share with you a special interview. It's with Clint Vince, and it's from the No-Nonsense Legal Literacy Archive. Let me see if I can get into the vault and find it. Some of you may remember that long before I started this podcast, I did a series of teleseminars under the Ask the No-Nonsense Lawyer banner, where I invited prominent lawyers to share their insights, things that would be important and relevant to the business community. Oh, I need a combination. Let's see. Let's try... Ah, here we go. July 2010. Appealing a lawsuit to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here it is. Why am I sharing this episode with you? What can we learn from 2010? Well, what struck me when I listened to it again are three things that are relevant to us now. First, how the discussion of what businesses can expect when appealing to the Supreme Court and the factors they should consider are still the same. Those things are important to know when managing business risk. Second is how decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court have a lasting and cumulative effect in ways that aren't always obvious. You'll hear Clint talk about the Citizens United case, which was pretty hot back in 2010, because the court overturned nearly 100 years of precedent by allowing corporations to make unlimited political contributions. Third, Clint's discussion of how changes in the composition of the court leads to philosophical realignments between the justices and how those changes affect how they interpret the Constitution and other laws. Now, that's a conversation we could have had over coffee this morning. Same as his observations about the justices' confirmation process, which at the time was for Justice Kagan, who was seeking confirmation from being Solicitor General of the United States. Now, that was relatively tame compared to what we went through with the confirmation of Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, or Coney Barrett. And that contrast really puts things into perspective about the role of the Supreme Court and where we are in our politics. So please sit back and enjoy. Clint Vince is the quintessential Washington lawyer, a lawyer's lawyer who's been named a super lawyer and as a leading energy attorney has garnered more accolades than I could possibly list. He is currently the chair of Denton's U.S. Energy Practice and co-chair of Denton's Global Energy Sector. It's a privilege to not only have him on this program, but to call him a mentor and a dear friend. And now from the archive, here we go. When it comes to lawsuits, we all want to win. 
We hate to lose, especially when we have a case on appeal and especially when that case is in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Hello, I'm Hannah Hazel-Kelchner. Welcome to Ask the No-Nonsense Lawyer. Today's special guest has an extraordinarily high success rate in the courtroom. He's a Washington super lawyer and chair of the Global Energy Practice at the international law firm of Sun and Shine Nath. You may have seen him on E&E TV discussing the challenges New Orleans faced after Hurricane Katrina and rebuilding its energy grid. It's a tremendous pleasure to have him here today and a great privilege to call him a personal friend and mentor. So here's a great big no-nonsense welcome to none other than Mr. Clint Vince. Hello, Hannah Laura. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. It's great to be talking to you tonight. <laughs> well, I am so happy that you're here. And Clint, would you agree with me that winning a lawsuit is a pretty big deal? Oh, yeah. I mean, it uh, sometimes can be the difference between a person's uh, personal freedom or lack of freedom or whether a corporation can continue to exist. Uh, or, in the case of the Supreme Court with the Rehnquist Court, who will be president of the United States? Those are really good points and all very, very important and serious consequences. You know, when it comes to the three branches of government, the court system is probably the most mysterious and least understood by people who aren't familiar with it, especially at its highest levels, at the Supreme Court level. Uh, would you help us understand how changes at the Supreme Court are relevant to Main Street and the business community? Well, if you look at the recent decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, they impact everything from campaign giving to personal right to bear arms to uh, the rights of criminal defendants to um, whether statutes or lower court decisions are going to be upheld. So Supreme Court's the highest court in the land, and it really uh, impacts every citizen. Well, it's got a huge reach. Tell us a little bit about the makeup of the court, not in terms of the names, but, I mean, how the composition and uh, the appointment of a new justice can, can really make a difference? Well, it's a great question because uh, with each new justice that is appointed, and there have been quite a few in the past few years, the entire alignment on the court changes. And that can have huge impacts on the ultimate uh, decisions of the court. Can you give us an example? Yeah, just look at what happened with uh, the Citizens United case, which is probably the most controversial case and center stage case that the court issued in its past term. It basically changed uh, maybe a hundred years of precedent and said corporate um, corporations can give unlimited funds in, in elections. Most people think that um, that precedent matters and you can't uh, change pre-existing law, etc. But the the real, um, I think, unknown and one of the mysterious features of the Supreme Court is that politics and philosophy matter very much, and especially this court has been very aggressive in uh, making changes. Well, how do they get away with that? I mean, the law is the law. It's not so black and white? <laughs> not at all. Uh, the Supreme Court tells you their interpretation of the law. And so many average citizens feel that, uh, just as you've said, the law is black and white. It's, uh, it's what it says it is, and the court just has to interpret it. 
But most cases that get up to the U.S. Supreme Court are there because of ambiguities in the law or uncertainty in what Congress's intent was or action by the executive branch. And the uh, Supreme Court has tremendous discretion to interpret it. You'll often see sweeping changes in precedent depending on the, uh, the, the composition and philosophy of the court. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. And, you know, you talk about the composition and philosophy of the court. Could you give us some examples of this alignment? I must feel like we're talking like a chiropractor here, for example, and aligning and realigning and, and trying to figure out how it aligns with perhaps business interests. <laughs> let's talk about the philosophy of the court and how that can change and, and why it should even make a difference. Well, let me give you an example. Right now, there are five, uh, a faction on the court that is, uh, contains five conservative judges and four liberal judges. And in just the past year, uh, Chief Judge Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, who uh, has been on the court about five years, really asserted himself in terms of leadership. And so, For the past term, it was clearly his court. He chose or helped select the cases that would be before the court, and he um, was in the majority 92% of the time. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that record uh, used to be held not quite that high, but uh, Justice Kennedy uh, in past years has been the swing vote, and most of the decisions have pivoted around his uh, willingness to vote one way or the other with a uh, with the 4-5 split. But now I would say it's the Roberts Court or the uh, Chief Justice Roberts-Justice Kennedy Court. What does that mean for the decision or the cases that come in front of them and the decisions that get made? Well, for example, the uh, Citizens United case that I mentioned, which was the the centerpiece of the past uh, term, I would say, uh, that was a 5-4 decision. That was pretty predictable. That went right along the conservative versus liberals. The Skilling case uh, was a little bit different. Uh, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts actually swung over and voted with the liberals on that case and found that the uh, state honest services law was too vague and too broad. The skilling was the, he was with Enron, right? This was That's a, right. Yeah. And uh, that there will now be um, a whole new set of uh, legal proceedings involving skilling because the law under which he was convicted has been uh, set aside by the Supreme Court as too vague. He's doing a happy dance. He is. He's not out of uh, the woods yet, but that was certainly a positive ruling for him. And um, many other rulings. The Miranda, you've heard, I think everyone has heard of Miranda, the Miranda warning. If they haven't, they're not watching enough TV. (laughs) And, uh, well, the court has been narrowing the Miranda warning and rules. the conservative faction has been very aggressive in narrowing those rights. And so now a criminal de- uh, defendant has to ask for a lawyer, has to affirmatively assert his uh, wishes to have his or her Miranda rights um, uh, protected in order to receive that 
protection. So that's a big change. Yeah, because they need to know about that. So we need to have smarter crooks. <laughs> I don't know. That's you know that's interesting um, that there can be this kind of shift or, or this you know gradual change. It kind of runs counter to the assumption a lot of folks have that the law immutable, and it's really not. It's really true. I think the only two justices now that really are uh, fixed to um, either originalism or textualism, which means a verbatim uh, interpretation of the text and interpretation of what was the original intent of the framers of the Constitution, are probably um, Scalia and Thomas. I think even the other conservative judges are, uh, which would include uh, the Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kennedy, Justice Alito, are all uh, much more pragmatic now. So if I'm hearing between the lines here, um, depending on the nature of your the issue you seek to appeal, you really have to have a bit of a handle on what the philosophies are of the individual justices in evaluating whether it's going to be worth your while or whether you're going to get shot down. It's critically important. I think that the starting point for anyone mounting a, a uh, presentation before the U.S. Supreme Court needs to have counsel that is fully familiar and advised on the philosophical position and uh, voting position of each member of the Supreme Court. It's critically important in framing whatever legal argument, policy argument uh, you wish to make to that court. Let's talk a few minutes about how you get a case to the Supreme Court. It's not like you just wake up one morning and say, you know, I'm going to take it to the Supremes. You know, (laughs) there's a process here. So fill us in a little bit about the the main ways. I know that there could be lots of little nooks and crannies that can get you to the Supreme Court, but, you know, the the, what are maybe two ways, three ways, the most common ways that a, a case would get there. There are a number of ways that a case can get up to the court, but the court is very selective about which cases it will hear. The two principal ways to get up there are by writ of certiorari, which is fully within the discretion of the court, and by an appeal uh, subject to a statute of Congress that allows the court to have jurisdiction over direct appeal. And that is less, uh, that is not discretionary generally. Although there are three branches of government and the Supreme Court is an independent judiciary, Congress prescribes the jurisdictional limits and boundaries of the court. So, for example, voting rights cases can have a direct appeal or disputes among the states. Can, can The Supreme Court would have original jurisdiction in most cases. Now, if I have a case that I'm not happy with in the lower court, what factors should I be looking at as a business person in deciding whether or not to spend the money to take it to Washington? Well, to go up to the highest court of the land, it's either got to come from the highest state court, so a state Supreme Court, or it can come from a uh, federal uh, district court in certain circumstances or a federal appellate court. But one of the things that is not very well known but is really critical is if your case involves the United States government which or the executive branch, which really would uh, relate to most of the cases being brought before the Supreme Court, 
your first stop should really be at the Solicitor General's office because the court gives tremendous respect to the opinion and research of the solicitor's office. The solicitor is the chief advocate for the executive branch, the United States federal government, before the Supreme Court. A lot of people think the solicitor's role is so important that they call the solicitor the tenth justice. To give you an example, the court very frequently, in fact, increasingly in recent years, asks the Solicitor General in a number of cases what his or her opinion is on whether a case should be certiorari should be granted or denied or whether it should be uh, received and uh, remanded and vacated. Approximately 80% of the time, the solicitor's recommendation is accepted by the court. So it is really important for a corporate client, for example, with a major uh, issue that is headed toward the Supreme Court that might involve a federal agency's regulations, for example, of that, of that corporation. Very important to go see the solicitor general and uh, try to convince the, the Solicitor General either to take your cause up to the Supreme Court if it would be positive or not to, to recommend that your case be presented before the Supreme Court if you're adverse to, the, to say, a government agency's rulings. And how would somebody go about getting the Solicitor General's attention? You make a formal request for a hearing and uh, for a meeting I've done that, actually. The solicitor will nearly always agree to meet with you. The meetings used to be pretty informal and pretty small. They've gotten to be much more of an extravaganza in recent years. You can have quite a few people in the room. And you basically argue the merits of your case before the solicitor. You, you don't go in to lobby the solicitor or to speak in generalities. You really have to have a very carefully composed legal argument and um, and a rigorous uh, explanation of why your position should be should be uh, sustained. So it's like a dress rehearsal then. It is, and it's interesting. Some solicitors will listen carefully, and may it may very much impact their decision. Uh, other solicitors will use that discussion as an opportunity to to have a better idea of what your Legal arguments might be up at the Supreme Court, but given the uh, 80% acceptance rate, it's, it's a stop that you have to make even though there are risks. Very interesting. I like these little tidbits here. Very, very valuable advice for anybody who is uh, seriously interested in pursuing a Supreme Court appeal. So this, this kind of falls into the category of something that you definitely do want to do. Let's talk about some more do's. I think the U.S. Supreme Court is completely different than any other type of advocacy I've done, and the rules are different. The, it definitely is the Super Bowl of oral argument. And so you want to make sure that you have engaged counsel that fully understands the Supreme Court practice rules and understands how to present issues that are likely to attract the court's attention or likely to convince the court not to take the case, if that's the goal. You want to be using 
a law firm or team of lawyers that have not only had advocacy experience, but it's also helpful if uh, somebody on the team has actually worked at the solicitor's office or has worked at the very least, maybe clerked for a Supreme Court justice, or has serious appellate experience because it is, uh, it's completely different ground rules. And if you go up to the U.S. Supreme Court using the same techniques that you would for a traditional appeal to a U.S. Court of Appeals, you're going to find yourself in real trouble. How are they different? What is so fundamentally different that could trip people up? Well, the rules by, of jurisdiction are completely different. The, the types of cases that the court is interested in, the procedures for filing a petition of, uh, for certiorari or a notice of appeal are completely unique and different. There's a great book on U.S. Supreme Court practice, and that's the name of it. It's uh, Supreme Court Practice. It's really the Bible for how to prepare cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the authors, the first two authors are Gressman and Shapiro. Shapiro is, was actually my mentor in my first uh, argument up before the Supreme Court. Great guy, former deputy solicitor general. That's a book that anyone that has a case heading to the Supreme Court or anyone considering bringing a case to the U.S. Supreme Court would want to consider. It's it's really great book. I'll have to remember that. Stern and Gressman. And it's Supreme Court practice. So when you had this, when you actually you had one of the authors, you had uh, Mr. Shapiro. Stephen Shapiro. Yeah, Stephen Shapiro helping you out. What types of things would he coach a, a counsel on? Well, we had a lot of fun, but we also spent some really serious time together. I mean, he he explained everything from how to conduct yourself before the podium, for example. The the Supreme Court advocates that are experienced will walk up to the podium and there's a little old uh, hand crank on the side of the podium to raise or lower it. And most experienced advocates will just uh, crank it up or down just to show that they know their way around that podium. And... um, the microphone, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist used to hate it when uh, an advocate would touch the microphone. It was very carefully set up. I, I actually saw him uh, yell and rebuke a uh, yell at and rebuke a uh, an advocate who tried to adjust the uh, microphone to his uh, height. So there were tiny things like that. But most importantly, Steve Shapiro helped me know what the philosophy of each justice was with reference to the issues I was raising before the court. And he helped me understand how the court often uses an advocate as a vessel to really where one justice will argue to other justices on the court to try to get their approval on certain issues. So, No kidding. Oh, yes. So frequently an advocate will be... Um, you know, will be used by one justice or a faction of justices to try to influence the other justices or to try to extract policy concessions or factual concessions. It's in the way they phrase the question. Yes. And uh, I remember Sandra Day O'Connor's hypothetical questions were famous. Her clerks used to help her prepare very complex hypotheticals. 
When I argued in the case where Stephen Shapiro helped me, they first put me through something called the Academy of State and Local Governments, which had been formed in response to former Chief Justice Berger's complaint that state attorneys general were not, and, and deputy attorneys general were not, bringing a level of excellence to advocacy before the court that he wished to see. So they formed this academy. I went through it. They gave really rigorous moot courts and had panels of uh, judges for the moot court who were former Supreme Court clerks. It was done uh, under the auspices of Georgetown uh, University Law Center, which now actually has a Supreme Court Institute that's very excellent. They put me... uh, through all of that training, and then Stephen Shapiro wanted to make sure that I knew what the philosophical positions of the court were in each instance. The court then was also, under Chief Justice Rehnquist, was much more of a states' rights court. I think the court under Chief Justice Roberts is uh, less interested in federalism now, less deferential to the states than might have been the case uh, before the prior court. Now, when you were at the podium and the times that you've argued before the Supreme Court and you've cracked it up and down and you don't, <laughs> like you don't tap it and go testing, testing. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably make them jump out of their chairs or something. <laughs> Surely so. I did, see a, a, uh, I did see one advocate severely admonished because he began to speak in very stentorian tones. His voice was so loud that uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist almost came out of his seat and said, Qu- quiet down, you know, oh. we can hear you, don't, don't uh, shout. <laughs> now you're standing in front of this huge, impressive panel, this intimidating panel. Were there any surprises when you were up there? At the time I argued with, uh, in the case we just mentioned, that was more than 20, that was about 20 years ago or more. At that time I was surprised at how old the justices were, and there were, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was the only uh, female justice. Those two things surprised me. It didn't, it struck me that it, at that time, the court did not seem to represent the, uh, you know, the cross-section of America. And I think now there's been huge improvement in that area. I think the diversity of the court has improved, and I think the justices are much younger and uh, with it, I think that's a that's a positive development. Well, that's certainly good to know. I couldn't agree more with you about the diversity. Things have changed. America has changed, and the court needs to change with it. So those are definitely True, truly so. Very much so. Let's explore some more about the do's and don'ts about appealing a case to the U.S. Supreme Court. What are some other things to avoid? Well, one thing that you don't want to do is. Uh, if you're dealing with an issue that is confined to one member of the industry and it's adverse, you don't want to take it up and have the Supreme Court apply uh, a bad ruling to the entire industry or uh, stretch a bad decision and, and make it a, a more blanket ruling. I think that, you know, in the case of uh, criminal defendants, for example, now I, I think it would be unwise for people concerned about um, expanding criminal defendants' rights or expanding gun control. I think this is the wrong moment to bring those kind of cases to the court. 
I don't know what will happen with respect to financial regulation and health care reform, which are probably two of the uh, most recent pieces of legislation that no doubt will find their way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in some litigation context. But people bringing broad industry-wide issues have to be very, very careful what cases they want to present, what the fact pattern is. We want to make sure it's it's a favorable fact pattern and uh, one where the equities lie with the uh, with the proponents of of the position being presented to the court. Now, what would make a fact pattern more favorable than another? Can you give us any examples? Well, let me think. Um, I would have chosen a different criminal defendant than uh, Jeffrey Skilling, I think, in the Skilling case. I think, in, as a practical matter, the court decided that the statute was overbroad, was vague and, and overbroad. But I think I would have tried to present a potentially more attractive or less controversial defendant to the court in that case. On states' rights cases, I think that um, you wouldn't want to have a fact pattern where the policy on your issue might affect a totally different issue of concern for the court. For example, in some of the uh, federal abstention cases where the court was concerned about having the ability to go into states to protect civil rights, uh, you wouldn't want to be arguing a fact pattern that uh, federal courts should abstain if it looked uh, like it would impact a uh, civil rights case. So you really need to take a very, very close look at the case that you have and uh, yeah. look at the greater good. Make What do they say? That, uh, tough cases make bad law? True. Yes, truly so. And I, I think when you're dealing with the Supreme Court, you need a team because uh, there are very few single practitioners that just have a really, really broad enough understanding of the views of all of the members of the court and the facts of the case and the record of the case. Which, by the way, is one other interesting point in in selecting an advocate before the U.S. Supreme Court to advance your position. I think it's more important to have an advocate that fully and completely understands the record of the case. I think that's the single most important aspect of preparation for advocacy, and it's it's actually more important, I think, to have somebody that fully understands the record than someone that has argued a large number of times before the court. As a business, you have counsel that has taken a case to trial. You're not happy with the result. You think the court reached the wrong result. You appeal it. You appeal it several levels, whether it's through the state system or the Circuit Court of Appeals through the federal system. And next up, U.S. Supreme Court. And the the counsel that you've had from the trial level on is the most familiar, but maybe they've never argued a case before the Supreme Court. Best thing to do under those circumstances. Then you would probably form a team where you would try to find someone with experience before the Supreme Court and uh, have the members of the team bring that person fully up to speed on the record. But if you didn't have the time or the resources to do that, I think you're better off taking the person that knows the record and having some Supreme Court advocates train that person for the for the Supreme Court argument. Yeah, because they will definitely know the ins and outs and the nooks and crannies of 
facts in that case. They've been living it and breathing it probably for yeah. several years at that point. My uh, The case that Stephen Shapiro helped me with, I was arguing against a former solicitor general who had argued about 65 cases up there. Rex Lee, great guy, great advocate, but he did not know the record as well as I did. And so um, Stephen Shapiro felt that was a huge advantage for me. I think the, the media reviewing the uh, argument felt it was an advantage also, even though Rex Lee was a superb Supreme Court advocate. So it takes more than just advocacy skills. Yes, you have to know the record cold. And by the time a case gets to the Supreme Court, the record can be very extensive. Absolutely. It can be enormous. And especially these days with electronic discovery, getting into every little nook and cranny of somebody's email and God knows what other unstructured electronic documents we are creating these days that before were just done anonymously. Now you've got electronic trail. That's right. And by the way, there are no, there's no place to hide when you finally get your case up to the Supreme Court. I mean, you your case has been fully briefed. There are nine justices. They each have, read the briefs carefully. They have three law clerks each generally. Your opponents at that level are highly talented. So there are no finesses or hiding of key facts or information at the U.S. Supreme Court. At least 36 lawyers have combed through it with a fine-tooth comb, right? Yes, and then if um, there are interested uh, parties that may not, interested uh, constituencies that may not even be parties in the case, they might file an amicus brief as well. So. Yeah, the friends of the court. Let's talk about them. How do you get friends? Is it like Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I think most of the cases that uh, are brought before the U.S. Supreme Court have significant enough importance because there are really very few now in each term. Your friends find you. <laughs> anyone studying the issues before the court that has an interest in it they will find you and of course by the time you get to the supreme court you probably have a pretty good idea of organizations that might be supportive and you can have a conversation with them yes i understand that happens i understand also that can also be very political in terms of some organizations may or may not, even though they like the issue, they may not like who's bringing the issue, and so they pick and choose. So there's there's just no end to the little political dimensions to all of this and trying to get the what you think is the proper decision and have it heard and reach the right result, which is why playing at this level is... Um, I think it's more than the Super Bowl. I mean, it is it is huge prime time, without a doubt. <laughs> I mean, it's like the Super Bowl and the World Cup all rolled into one. Any single misstep can just blow years and years of work and invested interest in a favorable resolution for your business, which is why I think strategically it's important to keep all these factors in mind. Actually, I'd like to explore that a little bit more with you. If you're talking to a CEO or a general counsel of a firm or maybe the president of a smaller company who doesn't have an in-house counsel but has a very, very serious matter and, and one that they have the resources to pursue, perhaps to the Supreme Court level, what types of factors should they consider? Because, I mean, everything is a risk, and it's a calculated risk, and we want to make smart decisions. What kinds of things should they put into their calculus in deciding whether to, to go for it. I think that 
the most important thing to consider is just how severe, assuming you're going up to the Supreme Court and you're taking the case up, you know, how severe was the loss that you encountered? How severe is it toward your ability to continue in business and so on? If you're defending, you have less discretion. Someone else might be bringing an appeal of a case that you have won or seeking certiorari on a case that you have won, and then you've got to make a decision as to how important that case is to you. In most cases, if it's going up to the Supreme Court, it's quite important. I think generally it's not a very close call as to, as to whether you need to really put resources into the case. Why do you say that? Usually by the time it's going to the Supreme Court, it's got such uh, broad importance it's going to have consequences not just for your individual company or individual person, but maybe a whole segment of the industry if it's corporate or a whole class of um, defendants if it's criminal. So that momentum and the fact of the ethics and the justice behind it will carry it across the finish line of the decision to, to go ahead. Yeah, I think most people that are... Well, certainly if you're defending a case, I've never had a client that's had a case of mine where, where another party is seeking to uh, go up to the Supreme Court on cert that, that hasn't been extremely interested in that case. And most clients that have not had a favorable outcome, if it's of substantial economic importance or a major principle of concern to them, they will seek to get up to the court. And again, that's where the trip to the Solicitor General, if it's a case involving the, uh, a government agency or the federal government, can be so important. And if it's not involving the federal government or an agency? I think then it's um, probably got less likelihood of coming before the court, candidly it would have to be an interest of uh, an issue of keen interest to the court. So we've touched on some do's and don'ts and overall if you stand back and do the 10,000 foot view, what do you think the biggest mistakes are that businesses make when dealing with an appeal and then with a Supreme Court appeal? I think the mistake that businesses make are to not acknowledge the clear language of a statute or not acknowledge when facts are adverse to them or equities are adverse to them that, that sometimes there's a time when it's better to just take your licks and move on. You can make it worse. I mean, how bad could it get when you already have a decision you don't like? It's so hard to generalize, but you can have much broader application of the case. You might have a fact that involves one company or one issue, and it can become uh, applied to uh, across the board for your industry or all of the companies or facilities you might be operating. So you have to be really, really selective as to what you want to take up on appeal and, and then all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. What other things should we know about the Supreme Court? Well, I think you're about to have some, I mean, we've had some very lively hearings in a sense with uh, uh, Solicitor General Kagan. I think the conventional wisdom is that most of our senior strategists in both parties feel that, uh, that she will be confirmed and uh, sail through. That will in and of itself create a new alignment on the court, so there'll be uh, a degree of unpredictability. Uh, she'll be in all likelihood confirmed and will replace Justice Stevens. But 
uh, even though it's perceived that she will probably have a more liberal liberal uh, stance than the conservative wing of the court right now, it's a huge loss, for example, that Justice Stevens is stepping down. He was on the court, I think, for the second longest tenure of any justice. I think he was on for more than 35 years. And on the Supreme Court, seniority matters. So, for example, if a chief justice is not in the majority on a case, the person that assigns the opinion is the next most senior justice, which in many cases you know, would be Justice Stevens. Now you would have uh, uh, Elena Kagan uh, coming on board um, as a junior justice. And why would assigning the opinion make a difference? How is that? Well, it would. It depends on who would uh, then write the opinion, which is very, very important. And also, the justices speak in order of seniority in the conferences. So the chief justice goes, justice goes first, and then Justice Stevens would go second. And it is said that sometimes in those conferences, by the time you get to the judge with the least seniority, the decision is already pretty well made up. It's clear how the how the decision is going to go, and so that person's comments may not be as important or relevant. Isn't that interesting? So even that gets a bit politicized. That sounds, sounds like what happens in some corporate boardrooms, too. <laughs> you know, what do you think? No, what do you think? <laughs> of course, uh, you know, they're more polite about it. <laughs> and yeah. It sounds like there's a clear pecking order here in terms of seniority. So I bet that's something a lot of us didn't know. Yes, there's also there's uh, differences of opinion as to just how important those conferences are, how much the justices listen to each other. Famously, Justice Thurgood Marshall was once excluded from a conference because he had to go to a funeral, and he had contacted Chief Justice Berger and uh, communicated that he had to go to a funeral, and uh, the Chief Justice went ahead and had the conference anyway, and uh, it became... Uh, there's a famous memo that Justice Marshall wrote to the Chief Justice that came out, I think, only recently, and indirectly, I think it was found in maybe in Justice Stewart's memoirs. But um, that happened only once, I think, after that. They, uh, the Chief Justice made sure everybody was there for the conference. What was in this memo? Do you remember what it said? Yes, as it's reported... Thurgood Marshall basically said it's essential for all of the justices to be present so they can present their views to one another. And when a justice cannot be present and has informed the chief justice, uh, the meeting should be postponed. And he felt so strongly about it that he stated he would not vote with respect to any of the cases that were discussed in the conference. And uh, the chief justice ended up rescheduling and they re-discussed each of the cases. That's interesting, because if he decided to abstain, then it's potential there could have been a deadlock. Yes. So what other good good little tidbits here do we have about the Supreme Court? These stories are good. <laughs> well, I, I think it is, um, it's a wonderful bar, and it's, uh, this is a, a really exciting court. I think the uh, tremendous intellectual firepower and a lot of, um, you know, very strong differences between the conservative and liberal faction, divided only by 5-4 votes. But at the same time, those votes, while they can be critically important on a case like Citizens United, 
I think more than 50% of the time, the court votes unanimously or eight to one. So uh, they're not divided on every single point. But do you think they're going to be more divided on business issues? I think you're going to see more business issues coming before the court because that's of more interest to the Chief Justice. Uh, I think that's part of his imprimatur. He brought several business issues before the court in the last term. You'll notice in the last term there were um, no abortion cases and uh, no prisoners at Guantanamo cases. I think there was only one national security case, which was an unusual national security case because it, it really had to do with people trying to provide humanitarian, uh, what they were arguing was humanitarian uh, aid or advice to a uh, organization that had been listed as a terrorist organization. So I, I think you're going to see more business and commercial decisions coming before the court. It'll be interesting to see if Solicitor General uh, Kagan becomes a justice, how her role develops on the court, and how the alignments change in the future. Definitely just something to keep an eye on and something that's going to be near and dear to business decisions and, and how they impact Main Street. We're all going to be paying close attention to that. And now that we have a little bit more insight and a, a peek behind those black robes, I always wonder what they have both underneath there. You know, maybe that's why it's so mysterious. You know, everybody's afraid to ask, touch the bike. Oh, my gosh. But, um, you know, the Supreme Court certainly is, is no laughing matter. It's something to take seriously. I was wondering, as we're getting close to the top of the hour, whether you have any closing comments, thoughts that you'd like to share with us. Well, my hope is that in the future, I'd like to see the body politic become a little more centrist, and I'd like to see some of the selections for the court become centrist, and I hope that the selections as they occur in the future continue to really emphasize uh, diversity, cultural diversity, and racial diversity, and gender diversity, and also I like this uh, fact that there is a youthfulness to the court. I think it's a shame that the confirmation hearings have become so politicized that the persons uh, seeking to be confirmed for a Supreme Court position really have to do almost a kabuki dance where they really can't reveal their personal philosophies, etc. They're ultra-careful. I think it's unfortunate the extreme that, that occurs now, and it's if you notice, all almost all of the recent justices that have been confirmed have had to do the same thing. That's I think right. that's a shame. So I, I hope we um, continue to move in the direction of having a more pragmatic court, more diversified court, younger, and one where the respect, even across uh, philosophical lines, is is adhered to. Well, hopefully they'll get some good fact patterns to work with and they'll be able to play nice and we'll have some good law come out of it. That's the <laughs> best we can hope for here. But Clint, I want to thank you so much for some of these eye-opening insights and the practical knowledge that you've shared with us here. It gives us all a new perspective on how businesses can perhaps strategically analyze the appellate process to see how it aligns with their business objectives. You know, for example, take your losses and run or you know, fight on, depending on yeah. the situation. And it gives us, I think, a new appreciation for the role of Supreme Court and the third branch of government, which we sometimes take for granted, but is was one of the greatest strengths of our democracy. That wraps up another edition of Ask the No-Nonsense Lawyer. And there you have it. 
I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode from the No Nonsense Legal Literacy Archive. If you're listening and you'd like more information about Clint Vince and his amazing work at Denton's, that link, along with a transcript of this episode, can be found in the show notes at businessconfidentialradio.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from a better understanding of what's involved with appealing a lawsuit to the U.S. Supreme Court, or who just wants a peek behind the curtain, please tell them about this bonus episode, share the link, and leave a positive review so others can learn about it too. We'll be back on Thursday with our regularly scheduled weekly episode of Business Confidential Now. In the meantime, have a great day and an even better tomorrow.